Alright. Yeah. Is there Tom? Yep, I'm here. Is it Thomas or Tom? Thomas. Only because I got only because I got nieces and nephews and I don't like them calling me Uncle Tom. Take it from the top, brother. Okay, thanks, man. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't right. be sorry. This is your time. This is this is your moment. Andrew McGowan. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna portray things in the correct manner. My name's uh, Andrew McGowan. Uh, my family calls me Andy. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. In the neighborhood, uh, I'm known as Brick. I tell everybody it's because my head is square, but um, really it's because I was involved in drugs for a period of time. Um, I was born in 87. Um, the man who raised me wasn't my biological father. He met my mother when I was six months old. Uh, well, my dad's from... Uh, different class of family so the past that my mother had he couldn't cope with that so he uh, went his way and she would another but Rick his name was Detroit he's a solid dude uh, he raised me and my three sisters and then uh, Kirk was big back then he's a hard worker my mom snorted he snorted everything was fine we were happy uh, he actually moved out of the bottoms up to the hilltop, which, if you're from there, you understand what that means back then. Now it's reversed, and the bottoms is a little nicer than the hilltop, but, uh, when crack hit, it was like things, overnight things changed. Um, they lost a family business, he had a trucking business, uh, went downhill systematically. Um, he kept smoking, my mom quit, it's... One of the only things to her credit in my life is she quit. Um, so, so we were just on our own, me, my three sisters, my mom for a while, for for a long time. And uh, he smoked, was in an healthy joint, um, in and out of our lives. Like it was, it was a strange thing. All the all the smokers hung out in a certain area of the neighborhood. That was two streets over from where we lived. So. Uh, you'd go to the, the bum hole is what it was called, and that's where you'd see Pop swing by and see my dad back there with the bums. But uh, uh, during that period, I was supposed to care, took me a few times because I wouldn't go to school. Mom would get us up to go to school. She'd go to work. We'd go. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So, uh, they said she was an unfit mother for that and put me in foster care. And, and that was like personal offense and how hard she took it offended me also. So I made it a point in foster care not to go to school to show them it wasn't her and it was me. That kind of blew up in my face. So they sent me to uh, uh, group homes and residential treatment, which is um, residential treatment's the new name for orphanage. And it's all the old orphanages from the early 1900s are now converted to residential treatment facilities. And it's honestly it's prison without the 
without the fences. Uh, I didn't know that then, I know that now, just from the, the system that I lived in. Um, and I think, like, uh, it's, e it's easy to say, well, this is part of their plan, but I think the system's just the system, whether you're a child or an adult, and it affects you the way that it affects you. Well, this is, this is what I wanted to... dehumanizes you, and... This is what I wanted to ask you, because up in Ohio, especially, you have, you know, the school-to-prison pipeline. Now, as an adult and understanding, would you feel that you were part of that pipeline? I said up in Ohio, you know, they have a big... Uh, they have a big issue with school to prison pipeline of course all through america but ohio specifically as an adult and understanding that system would you say you were, you felt like you were part of that that pipeline I don't believe in coincidences. That's exactly it. That's the that's the million that's the million dollar question, right? Is how many people would be unemployed if it wasn't for the prison system? Or someone else. So he's invested in not completely doing his job. 
And if anyone doesn't see that, then they're a fool. Well, this is, this is what I'm trying to lay out, right? This is the map that I'm trying to lay out. And you're doing a great job at explaining in detail. You are a victim of exactly what it is that I'm trying to show to the American people. And that is that we know that the war on drugs, the crack epidemic, was created by the government, right? If you don't know that, all you have to do is is research Rick Ross's case, the real Rick Ross out of California. Right. So all you have to do is just research that this man got up on the stand and testified that he was working and selling drugs for the CIA. So we know that this epidemic was created by the government. And what you're doing is explaining how your life spiraled out of control because of this government made war on drugs. Let's get back into let's get back into your life. So you're you're now uh, in 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 the foster care. Um, you're in the system, and you come out of foster care the first time, and you go back with your family now, right? Yeah, I was. Uh, I remember they sent me to Newark to this awful fucking family. Uh, this big fat son of a bitch, uh, Frank and Linda. They were extremely abusive, man. And uh, they had us piled in this bedroom like it was a jail cell with all these different bunk beds. And uh, I would talk to us like dogs, bro. And like we, there was parts of the house that was off limits. The kitchen, obviously, one. There was a separate bathroom, which was ours, which was bare bones. And then you had like a hygiene bucket. And you would be, they cut you a bar of soap in half. And give you this little canister, like they take the toothpaste and squirt it into this little canister, and then you dig the toothpaste out with your toothbrush. It's just like you're living like a fucking refugee 
or like a like a goddamn animal. You're there for profit, and you feel that even though you don't know it. And how were they living? How were how were the owners living? Oh, they were great on the other side of the house. It was like it was sectioned off. There was a part of the front room that you just didn't cross without permission. And that side of the house was their side of the house, and it, it was great over there. And it was bare bones on the other side. And just doing. Like in a macho way, he like he like got his got his rocks off on us. So middle of the night, we'd be in there just talking. It's four boys in a room, so we're just in there talking shit, talking about girls and the future, etc. And he'd come in ten carat crazy in his boxers, flip the light on, snatch us out of bed, toss us around, regular foster dad shit. And uh, it's like he'd be flexing for his old lady beating on his kids. And uh, so, obviously, I wasn't very kind to this person. Um, I get a home visit, finally. And uh, I tell my mom about this dude. So, she, well, she can't find him. But she tried to fight as a lady and uh, jumped out the car. She come pick me up. I remember the Orbeez parking lot on the side of 23. <laughs> she jumps out the car and gets at this bitch. So obviously the bitch runs, gets in her car, they drive off. They call my mom, my mom's flipping on them. They record that and try to put her in jail. Is this thing you right? You have That's one kept. minute remaining. My mom defended me in this manner because she didn't do anything wrong. I, I didn't go to school. For this call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. And then these people abused me based off of that, and she stood up for her child. Well, she was criminalized for that. Um, and that's a, that's a whole lesson for you there, but about class and what side you're on. Um, but I left her after that incident, they got rid of me. I was in respite homes, which is she spent a week here, three days here, a day here, just bouncing around all different places all over the state until they placed me into residential treatment. And it was a punishment. Like, it was, it was told to me that I'm going here because how bad I am. Uh, and it was directly tied to my mother defending me about this, this dude putting his hands on us. So uh, I was there 11 months and three weeks, and that's a whole, that's a whole ordeal in itself. Uh, I can tell you. Thank you for using GTL. Just so you guys can understand while we're waiting um, for him to call back, these are the, the frustrations that families deal with every day when they're just trying to talk to their loved ones. The calls are 15 minutes. They're interrupted constantly with this stupid recording. So anytime that you're getting in the middle of a conversation, you, you're cut off. The whole process is made to disrupt and frustrate the family structure while we're going through this process. So we left off, you were, yep, we left off, you, um, you left the abusive uh, in Newark and you yeah. went to the residential treatment. Children's Home. It's, uh, it's been around since, I believe, the late 1800s. No brick facility uh, outside of Cleveland. It's uh, directly on Boarding Wallace campus. Um, and most of the uh, workers there were, were students. Uh, this place was an evil place, man. And uh, uh, 
I, I, I think life, the, the trajectory of my life was changed when I stepped into this place. Um, um, for multiple reasons, but it's, uh, they sent me here, like I said, as a punishment, but the uh, purpose per the, what they say it's for is for kids who face a high level of abuse. So to qualify for there, you have to have some type of sexual abuse. In this call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So, because at some point I was victimized, they send you to this fucking... You all right? Yeah. Am I talking loud enough? Yeah, I can hear you when you talk at that level right there. routine 
one room and then another. These are cells in retrospect. You go downstairs, they bring the pans into the dining room, which is the chow hall. And they're the same kind of pans that they use in the prison, the big metal pans with the metal lids. You sit and they serve you your food in the same manner the prison is. Uh, as soon as you're done with breakfast, then, and like I said, you're a child, you want the things that a child wants. You go directly from that room to the big middle room with couches all around it. And you do three consecutive hours of therapy. They call it PH. I can't remember what the fuck it stands for, but it's group therapy. And uh, you go through the same fucking questions every day. And uh, three consecutive hours of this shit. This would go from there across the sidewalk to the on-campus school. And it was similar treatment there. Um, Well, they told me I would be there for three months because I wasn't... uh, predator but instead of victim so i would be there for three months and then i would get to go home to my family at the three month period they said that i'd been in too many physical altercations so they wanted to keep me another 90 days so they did that and they said be on your best be on your best behavior don't get no write-ups and then you'll get to go home so i didn't get a single write-up did what i was supposed to do grades, etc. Uh, 90 day mark. And, and like in retrospect, this was the pro board. I just didn't know it was. You go into this conference room with this huge table and these people say all this stuff and then they give them time. So at six months, they flop me for another three months. So I go broke wild. And I'm running away every day, fighting a lot, vandalizing the place. If I can't get rewarded for the behavior that I've, that they told me I should have, why should I do anything for these fucking people who treat me this way? Why would I perform for them? So, uh, at nine months, they flopped me again, and that continued. So, I just, at that point, you know, you're a child, and you're so far away from home. I got no visits because I was so far away. Get a phone call. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So I'm running away all the time. I remember this little fat girl. They had they had girls in the in the cottage beside ours, but this is a housing unit. And uh, this little fat girl liked me, so we'd run away together. And it was I can't remember her last name for the life of me, but I'd like to I'd like to speak to her. Um, her she was there for two years at that point and based off of sexual abuse in, in her childhood. And uh, so her and I was running away, and a week before my board date, which was pro, they take me in there with my case manager, Mr. Steve, and he says, you get to go home. He says, we think that you've received all the benefits you can from this program, and you get to go home. I didn't know this at the time, but what they was worried about was me getting that girl pregnant. So they just got me out of there. What was they was now I know my good behavior didn't matter. They didn't care. They were keeping me there because my family didn't give a fuck about me and wasn't fighting for me. And they received the check. It was a bad feel. So it didn't matter how I acted or what I did. They were going to keep me there until it wasn't in their benefit anymore. And then once there may have been damages based off what I the way I was acting, then they decided to cut me loose early, and I got to go home to my family. And how old, how old was you at that? Childhood development. 
12 years old. You said, you said, you you said his name is Mr. Charles. What's his first name? That is his first name. What what facility? What facility was this at that you were at that Mr. Charles worked at? Say it again. know their names partner put them on blast put these people on blast these people that have hurt you put them on blast couch for 
the rest of the time that I was with my mom, which wasn't much longer, just never got back into the family. It was like, there was a pretty much just an unwelcome feeling. My sisters would make me feel that way. And, and, well, I don't really say these things. It was better when you weren't here, you know? Um, so... Then, uh, when I was 14... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. When I was 14, the foster people come to me again. Uh, you have one minute remaining. Education and neglect. I'm not going to go to court because I missed too many court dates. I mean, excuse me, too many school. Too many days of school. So at the court date, and I mean, she bragged about this, how proud she was that she accomplished this. Uh, she went in the courtroom and they were going to punish her for how I was acting. And she said, punish him. He's the bad one. Take him, show him, so they come snatch me up and put me in foster care. That's a, one of the proudest moments in her life. Um, so I was on the run. I went, left. I think I stayed three days that time. I was gone for nearly two years. And uh, I had a full-time job. I was working for this dude named John Watkins. And he tried to do good for me. Um, I was in the streets and stealing and trying to sell drugs. Couldn't really get on like I wanted to, but that was a goal. And, uh... Thank you for using GTL. Yeah. Okay, you said... Remember you said that your mom went and wanted to fight the, the woman over in Newark because the man, you know, put his hands on you and all of these things. Yeah. Why do you think that she did that that day when she's ultimately shown that you weren't her priority? Well, I was older at that point. Um, when, yeah, I don't know. I can't speak for her. My... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. It's not like love getting exist for the woman. She's she just so fucked up in the head based on her life, you know? Um, and then kids weren't a blessing to her. They were a burden. And just, she got pregnant to try to keep dudes, you know, standard shit. And she didn't keep them. Uh, so I think I was a constant reminder that my dad left her um, based on the things that she says. So, uh... And, you know, that's, that's a regular thing for girls. They keep their kids still. They feel like their kids are somewhat capable. And, uh, and then they get rid of them. It's a regular thing. But so you, you... I know that that woman loves me, but she, she, just, she doesn't know how to love somebody in the correct manner. Amen. You know what I mean? Amen. Well said. So let's get into now, you know, you, you're, you're out of foster care, you're on your own, um, and you go to state prison, right? What, you, what do you go to state prison for the first time? Before that, oh, I was 17. So I, I had a job, like I said, this dude, John, tried to get me out the streets uh, and had me working full time. I was 14, doing real fun and shit. Uh, 
seven bucks an hour, and I thought I was on my way. And I was like in this mode where I was so gung-ho because the way this dude was training me. I'm like, I'm not going to break the law. I'm not going to be a fuck-up. I'm going to be a success. And like he, he tried to help me. But the reason that didn't work is he wouldn't pay me. Like I'm doing all this work, and the guy just wouldn't give me no money. And, he, you know, he was using me. That's his, his nature took over, although he was trying. And that just made it appear, you know, that he was... Because he was taking advantage of me, it made it seem like all that shit was game. So I got away from him, got to fuck with my Uncle Daniel, who I was living with at the time. He let me crash at the house, and uh, I had to stay out of the way. But I got to kicking it with him more, and he's a cokehead, had me snorting coke. I was just a kid, and then started robbing people. at his request, you know, and uh, I ended up catching him. Right, we, we was uh, this dude I grew up with named Pepe. He's uh, Lamont Carter. Um, actually, Lamont's his brother. I can't remember his first name, but uh, Pepe's whatever they call him. So we're going to rob somebody out out the way. They're supposed to go to. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So that falls through. And then on the way home, I was trying to impress this bitch we was with and trying to be a big shot with them. And we was broke, so I was like, fuck, pull over right here. I walked up in the gas station and pointed the gun at the person and said, give me the money. It's just an impulse decision trying to be a badass in the the neighborhood. And... uh, this fucking bitch blames it all on me, which it was me, but he tells him all this shit. And uh, he goes to juvenile for like six months. I get bound over and go to prison for seven years. His bitch ass still in the neighborhood right now, uh, selling dope. Um, straight rat. But, um, yeah, so that, that was... That was that. And then I, I was alone in prison, obviously, because I just explained the way my family situation was. So I, I never heard from anybody. Uh, grandma a few times. Um, never heard from my father. I heard from my mother once, excuse me, twice. Uh, in the county, she wrote me a letter. And then after I got my time, she uh, wrote me a letter when I first got to the joint and uh, didn't hear from her anymore. Um, so I was just in here. And I think you know what that feels like, and probably a lot of people listening knows what that feels like. So with no support and being alone and being impressionable, you just try to make it. And the way to make it in here is by doing a bunch of stupid, you know, a bunch of dumb shit. Uh, and that, that thinking that I had to be violent in order to be respected and like the measure of my manhood was the measure of my anger um, that that left a permanent impression on me I didn't know the difference between respect and fear because there is no difference here uh, I ended up going home from Supermax Youngstown, Ohio and man, I was fucked up in the head I didn't even know it I didn't my last 14 months 
in solitary confinement uh, up there. And I was working out as hard as I could. Like, uh, that, was, that was my only value. I think you've seen guys doing that, going home off their first number, and they just want to be shredded and pinky. Because I had nothing in the world. So I thought, the better I make myself, the more this is going to pay off for me. And I had a lot of self-discipline, but I was also kind of crazy, and I didn't realize I was crazy. Like, the, the, the self-discipline came from a self-loathing place, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of that at the time. Um, I wasn't good enough, so that's why all these things happened in life, that's why people went the way that they went, etc. So I had to meet these standards in order to be accepted. So, like I said, seven years, come home, I got $27 left, that's my gate pay. I choose on that I had in a joint for two years. Uh, there ain't no hustle in solitary confinement, so, um, I mean, the bottoms was rural for these things. Uh, you said you said you had $27 and that was your J-Pay. What does that mean? They give you $75 when you leave prison in Ohio. Uh, nobody can pick me up. Nobody knew I was coming home. I hadn't talked to nobody for a long time. So... I rode a Greyhound bus from Youngstown to Columbus and then uh, went to the halfway house. And that after paying for the Greyhound bus and uh, a meal, I had $27 left. That was it. 24 so, years old, not a single life skill, so education. So all the money, would, so you $75 is what they gave you out of the door. All the money that all of these companies and corporations, J-Pay... So $75 is what they gave you when you left prison. Yes. J-Pay. Yes. Uh, any of these other companies or corporations that capitalized off you through your institution, through your incarceration, they didn't, they didn't offer any help no, I, for you in any kind of way. And, you know, that was 2012. Things have changed slightly. Like, they have uh, some reentry information. Um, I worked in the legal library, and they had a computer with all these different uh, reentry things, places you could get a job, etc. There was none of that. When I went home, they came and asked, do I have somewhere to go? I said, no. So I didn't know anything about... I get out, and they handed me the parole papers. I go see my PO, and she says, all right, you got to report to this place tomorrow. I mean, address. So I rode the bus out there, and that's where I lived. Um, but uh, from there, I walked to the temp, temp agencies to try to find a job, because, uh, like I said, I was working out super hard. And, like, I... I, train, I, I learned about nutrition, and I was going to dedicate my life to fitness because... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Well, so I had a full plan about how to be a personal trainer. Um, some college that I found in a men's fitness magazine, online college in Pennsylvania, did a nine-month course, and some had it all written down on paper like a like a psycho. Now I'm going get out and this is going to be this way and I'm going to do this and then after this step 
like one through ten. This was my plan. And I got to the temp agency, and they said that my degree of felony was too high because I had a aggravated robbery, which is a felony one with a violence specification. Um, they didn't care about the details. They didn't care that I was 17 or that it was a robbery of a gas station. They just said that it was a violent felony one. So they said, your degree of felony is too high. We can't place you anywhere. Um, so I argued with them a little bit. I'm like, what do you mean? Because there's bums off the street that they're sending out to get jobs. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, this ain't, I didn't articulate it because I, I didn't process it yet, but how, how can it be this way? I do, seven, I do seven years, and I come home, and there's no place for me. I can't get a job at a fucking temp agent. Not a crackhead or a rapist, which I don't judge nobody, but they would somebody with a sex case or somebody with a child crime, they would have sent off to a job immediately. But because... I attempted to rob a gas station as a child, so I couldn't work. Um, there was a pastor. He's a cool dude uh, that ran the ran the halfway house. Is the exit program is the name of it. I think his name was Pastor Rick. The older black dude. He's real cool. And uh, so he got me about two weeks later. He's giving me food because there's nothing to eat. So he's having me come down and filling up a box of food from the pantry and uh, so he sends me to this job at some metal factory and he said don't tell him you've been to the joint so I mean a, a pastor a man of God had to lie in order to get me a job so it was just a placement for three weeks this call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored the amount of life skills I had this is going to make you laugh Thomas uh, the I'm walking to the family dollar right around the corner and I'm picking meals uh, and I'm buying ramen noodles and a can of Jack Mac and some corn and some cheese and I'm fucking and I'm fucking breaking in the skillet. <laughs> That's the amount of life skills I had that I'm fresh out of prison and the food I'm choosing is, is a break in the skillet. Uh, like that... That puts things in perspective. So when that when that job ended, which it, it was just like five pallets of metal that I was shaving the edges off of, I had four hundred dollars. Uh, I left the halfway house and out west. Um, my sister's baby dad uh, is guy guy named Mark. You have one minute remaining. He was a big brother to me. I got a lot of love for this dude. But I ended up getting some dope off him. He, he gave me $25 off each gram. And I fucking doubled down and blew up, man. Like, it, all of me was invested into this because this was it. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't. It was either get to robbing people again or hustle this dope and have some success off of that. And, and when, when, we, when we come back, this is about this time is when you've met the most beautiful girl in your life, right? Thank you. So again, I want you to pay attention to what he said and how relevant that is to all the things that I've said throughout my program. 
When I've left prison, I've never met anyone who didn't have plans for success, who didn't want to go home and change their life and be better. It's just shortly after we get home, do we realize that they were all just pipe dreams? Reality smacks us in the face. Okay, D. So, yep. So you um, you you run across this this Gabby chick, man. Yeah. About the time that I first got on, I'm looking for somewhere to trap. I got some grams and uh, bust them down into berries, which is balloons up here. That was the thing at the time. This is when thirties was still packing, so. Part 30, a lot of people weren't on heroin yet, and most of the people that were were keeping it a secret, which actually worked out in my favor because... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Like, when I stepped out the door, Part 30 for $17. Um, a month later, there was 21 and in no time, there was 30 bucks. People couldn't afford to do it anymore, and for... Five bucks, it's equal to the high that they were getting for 21 or 22 bucks. So they switched. Um, but that was an embarrassing thing for people because they'd been saying for years and years that they would never do dope. And it's black tar heroin, not anymore. It's all fatty now, but at the time it was tar. Uh, it's what the Mexicans had up here, so uh, nobody wanted to seem like a dirty, nasty junkie. So I'm running running the neighborhood trying to trap and it, it worked for me because I was new and I, I didn't give a fuck I wasn't judging nobody so uh, and I talked earlier about Detroit Rick the, my stepdad um, him being in the neighborhood and hanging out with the bums uh, he always had a bunch of girls he's passed and I don't want to bring him in this picture like he was a grimy pimp but he had a lot of girls and uh, so that, that was like second nature for me, not not pimping girls. I never got into that, but girls at work, I've always felt comfortable with them uh, based off of hanging with him and his. So uh, that's who I was serving, was the working girls, and that did a lot for me because I didn't abuse them or take advantage of them. I just gave them somewhere safe to sit and looked out for them, so they... They also looked out for me. Um, there's a there's a strip in my neighborhood to put it in perspective. I talked to you before about this. FX did a special on it uh, a couple years back. Sullivan Avenue was the highest rate of prostitution per capita in the United States, and this is you know in comparison to the rest of the country. It's a small Midwest town, Columbus, Ohio, and it's just a little tiny. 15 block neighborhood, which is where I grew up at. I grew up directly off of Sullivan, uh, like 15, 20 houses down from Sullivan. So uh, that's where they work. They walk. And I was trapped right down the street where I grew up. But uh, anyways, when I first met Gabby, it's when I was running around looking for a place to be. I was going to try to hustle out south. And my Uncle Daniel was with... Uh, this bitch Tina Hunter she ended up she's a big old rat but uh, she got caught with like 10 ounces of dope and made up a story on this case 
that I have and told on a bunch of other people to get out of her time. Not completely. She's still locked up now, but uh, I went out there for Daniel was dating them, dating Tina, and Gabby had a previous child with her son, Eddie Hunter. He just got murdered in the neighborhood uh, two months ago. But... Uh, he was only out the joint like 10 days or something. Someone shot him in the face. But um, that's where I met her. And she didn't pay me attention. And I was broke and got a ride over there. But I knew I was going to have her. So once I started popping, I had my own trap and I was doing well. And uh, like I said, my brother-in-law, Mark, he kind of put me on. And he... We, we had a big falling out on this case. The guy, there's something wrong with the guy. But I loved him, and he took care of, he, he, he took advantage of that love. And, uh, and I was able to come off, come up off helping him. So, uh, once I, once I was popping myself and I fell out with him the first time, strapping hard and I was bored. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Sometimes I'd sit there for 48 hours straight drinking Red Bull, and uh, I'd have a bunch of money, so I'd leave, obviously you go buy shit, because then you start getting in these depressive modes, and uh, I was going out there fucking with her, and uh, I ended up keeping her. Long story short, I just showed her hell of love and didn't give her no choice. She really didn't seem like she was trying to mess with me. I just showed her so much love that she knew this is where she belonged and where she was safe, you know. Uh, and then I got her pregnant. And it was weird, too. Like, she's such an instrumental part of, I mean, really it's my failure, but success in that life. Um, the reason I started selling weight and quit piecing out was because I wanted more free time to be with her. So I went and got a brick and tried to sell ounces to the homies. And obviously that didn't work. That thing said on my microwave for a month and a half. I'm just running around trying to sell ounces. So uh, I just went around and put everybody on. I had all this dope, thousand ton grams. So here's six for you, six for you, six for you. And here's five phone numbers for customers. And, uh, you know, some of these people later was buying 10 and 20 zips from me. I've explained to you before up here, the measurements are different. It's uh, 25 a gram, 40 a brick, because that's the way the Mexicans give it to us, so that's the way it is. But, uh, so when I started making real money was when I wanted to spend more time with her, so I would... It's weird how that worked out. And then she brought me a lot of customers and a lot of different people to put on. Um, was Gabby... That slowly turned to where I was like just... Was Gabby a clout chaser? Did you feel like you had to to stay at a certain level to keep her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was... She never had... She never messed with anyone that had the amount of money I had. But it didn't start that way. Like, I made that... And I knew that this was the way that... She she was gonna stay. The richer I got, the safer I was in our relationship. And this Gabby had a hard life. It wasn't like she was superficial. She just she had a hard life, and uh, she wanted success too. And she she was a hard worker. It wasn't like she just sat around and like I just fucked her and 
she just got what she wanted. She 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 was a hard worker and she kept me safe and etc. But uh we we came up together. And like she supported me mentally in all these ways. Like I said, I didn't I didn't have a lot of value and I should compensated by being tough. So she kept me from punching people most of the time and then she would talk me up which which gave me confidence. She'd say shit and it's true though, but she one of her favorite sayings was you give this motherfucker a nickel come back in an hour and This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. But I was so proud of her, bro. She was just like well, hold on. You you got cut off by this. You got cut off by this dumbass recording, man. So she she would say what? You give her a nickel what? Uh, she would tell everybody that you give this motherfucker a nickel and come back in an hour and they'll have a dollar. And that was kind of true, you know. Uh, but she 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 was the proudest thing in my life, and she was pregnant with uh, my daughter Madison. Uh, and like everything was cool, everything was right. I was selling drugs, but I didn't care because I had money and I had Gabby, and we were moving forward with life. I finally felt like I belong somewhere. You know what I mean? A feeling that you've never felt uh, before in your life, and that you've wanted your whole life. Yeah, that was yeah, that was. I finally got the goal, and you know, money money was cool. And I I, I felt like the shit because. I had so many people reading up with me, and most of these people I put on, I, I picked up some other customers because uh, my shit, dude, dude was keeping me with some fire, so I picked up some other people. But uh, it was example, like on the weekend, I'd text all the homies, and we'd be at the strip club. This PD's this neighborhood strip club. We'd be in there 20 or 30 deep, and they'd have their customers with us, like the dudes that they're serving quarts and half to, and they're reading up with me. So I, I felt like I was some type of big shot. And that was that was my everyday life at that point. I'd wake up, put on my Rolex and my chain, and jump in my Range Rover, and like in my little world, I was the man. You know what I mean? I do. So what happened? Yeah. You guys got this this relationship going. You got you you got a child. You know you're you're making money. Yeah, we got in a fight. We got in a fight, and like money just wasn't even an object anymore. Like uh, I'll give you an example, and this this is going to seem like an exaggeration, but that's not. I don't often talk about numbers because people. Seem, it seem, seems like you'd be exaggerating in these situations. I didn't know how much money I had. It was coming, and I trusted Gabby. So somebody'd come, they'd bring their. I used to put my dope in Cheeto bags, hot Cheeto bags, that go to Sam's Club and buy them in bulk. And then I paid the corner store dude across the street to serve out of there. So I'd put it in a Cheeto bag, walk over there, get their money, put it in the Cheetos bag, they'd leave with the dope. So I'd take it out of there and just throw it in the bag. And I ended up getting a bunch of bags full, duffel bags. And like I said, it, it was our money. It wasn't, I didn't, I stopped counting this shit. I grabbed, once I, once I started getting low, like the bag would be getting empty. I'd uh, dump money out on the floor and count my radio. It was 53 a brick at the time and I was on five. So 
account now, re-up out, and throw the rest back in the bag because I don't know if you if you can relate, but you get tired of counting. It just it's, it becomes a chore. So you only count when you have to. And uh, but we dumped it out on the floor and we counted the money one day in the front room right before our daughter came, and it was thousand dollar stacks. And it covered the entire front room floor. These are 50, 120, if we didn't count tens or fives. The entire front room floor went through into the walkway area and down the entire hallway. Thousand dollar stacks all through my house. And this is a house I grew up in where things was was bad. This is where I was hungry and like hurt and abandoned. And the entire first floor was thousand dollar stacks side by side across the whole thing. Couldn't even walk. Uh, so, um, I never sold the Coke. Like, it wasn't my thing. Because I, I like Coke. That's like my only, my only drug weakness. Um, so, I just wouldn't re-up with it because I always stick my finger in it and get a nummy and then be at the strip club and end up fighting with her, you know? Uh, so, she did something. I was petty shit, but we was beefing. So, I started snorting Coke. And like they just they just drop one on me because they wanted me to do some stuff with it. I didn't realize how good the stuff was, so I started doing bumps out of it. She's cussing and hollering at me. And uh, so, long story short, three days later, I still ain't been asleep, and I'm hallucinating. I've never been through this before. You have oh. one minute remaining. She leaves. She's pissed. She's like, "Fuck you! I'm going to the hotel." Uh, grab some money, takes off. I was happy to have her out the house because the state that I was in. Uh, shortly after that, I started seeing shadow people. I've never seen them before, you know. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but like you see something out the corner of your eye that's not really there. So I freak out to think that she's setting me up, and I grab a Tech Nine. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I started, like, what was going on in my head was, like, this whole rainbow situation. But none of that was reality. Like, I was tripping balls. And, uh, I got to prison for 18 months for that retarded-ass shit. Uh, shot my own house up while I was tired of it and ended up going to prison for 18 months. And I was explaining to you before how it was kind of like a blink of an eye. Thank you for using GTL. Yeah. Okay, I'm here. Hello. Okay. Um. So, uh, it's like I said, it's like in my memory, it's like a blink of an eye. That 18 months, uh, and it was, it's kind of like poignant and sad. But She's standing in the door where Gabby is, walking out in the front room on Avondale, and she's holding a newborn child, and it's like she knew what was coming, and I kind of knew it too, and I still just, still just didn't accept it because for whatever reason, like, you know, that stupid pride feeling, you know, like whatever, damn the consequences, you know? Yep. But, uh... This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I remember the way she looked. I don't remember her words or verbatim, but I remember the way she looked. And, 
said something about losing your family. And then fucking four hours later, I'm in handcuffs, heading back to the joint. Not even a dope case. Like they found the ounce that I was snorting out of, but they didn't find. They didn't bring a dog in the house, so they didn't find anything else, just the one I was snorting out of. And, uh, like I'm whole, pretty Montana whole face, and that's it. You know what I mean? And, uh. But. How did the cops get there? When you when you shot the t shot the house up from the Tech Nine, did the neighbors call the police? What happened? Nah, nobody called. Everybody knew it was me. And like I said, it was at that time I was somebody. You know, I took care of my little area right there. So nobody called the law. They knew it was coming from my house. And uh, I thought I killed somebody. Like in my mind, that was all that was really happening. And I thought. Somebody entered my home and I killed him, which I, I would have been within my rights. I'm not allowed to have a pistol because I was a felon, but I thought somebody entered my home. And uh, so I jog around the corner and because I thought that they was outside, so I was like, I just, I gotta get out of here. So I dip around the corner to my friends and he's like, what's going on? Because he seen me freaking and I had a tech nine in my hand. He's like, what's going on? And I was like, I just killed somebody. And so he calls the law, and uh, they asked me what happened. And I was like, some people came in my house and shot them. I shot them. So they're like, what's, where's the house? I tell them the house. I had the passcode, you know, the locks where you enter yep. the code with your finger. At the time, they were like $300 locks. I had them all over the house, so we didn't have to use keys. So I gave them the passcode. They walk in the house, and there's a ounce of dope sitting on the table. And bullet holes everywhere. There's no dead person. So they come back to me, and I'm like, are they okay? Are they alive? I'm trying to find out if they're dead or alive. And I'm like, don't worry about it. They know I'm tripping. I don't know I'm tripping now. And uh, I've never been through that before. So uh, I go to the joint. And uh, like I said, it was like a blink of an eye from when she walked out the door and gave me that statement about you're going to lose your family if you don't stop. I took that as a threat, so it pushed me harder, but she was telling me, like, hey, get, get a grip on yourself. And uh, so I get out of Youngstown. I went home from Supermax again, and the Supermax prison. I wasn't on the Supermax side, though. I get out and get a ride back to the house, and I'm sitting in the front room. My daughter's at my mom's house. I'm waiting for her to come up. She's because I got in contact with my mom again we were out of contact for years and years when I was in the county jail Gabby started getting strung out and that's a huge part of the story I'll go right back to that after I finish this sentence but uh I was sitting there thinking and like everything was different all my nice stuff was gone Gabby was gone and I'm in my used to be beautiful home that's now all fucked up because SWAT hit it three times when I was in the joint and I got these dirty ass bums living in my house with their 10 kids uh yeah, it was just like like I said it's the feeling it's like the blink of an eye like I went to sleep and woke up and the whole world was changed uh I guess maybe that was that's the level of trauma that nothing in between even stuck with me I mean obviously if I think about it I remember the situations but uh so when I was in accounting for the, the pistol and that dope 
um, she got to start in thirties and uh, beating Zannies, and the Zannies is what got her out of control because she was just bug wild. But she got all these dudes in my house. They're trying to get at my connect, and she's frightened up at my name, and has random guys serving people, calling people, saying, like, I'm talking to people, and they're like, somebody called me and said that they were you, and to come through. Yeah, I'll be doing it with these little lames. And I'm, I'm calling her, and I'm like, why are you doing this, bro? And she's so fucked up on Zanies and 30. She's like, he's my bitch. That's my bitch. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I gotta do something to you, come on. Like that, and I'm like, just speaking to me disrespectfully like this. And, uh, so, and, you know, it's, there's a lot of heartbreak involved with that, too. So you're, you're feeling them feelings. And, uh, so last time I spoke to her when I was locked up, she... She went through just over 300 grand. That's cash that was out. And uh, she's fighting with me all the time. Where's more money at? Because I call and she said, where's the money at? And I said, go, go over here and lift this up and get in here. I just had so much. I'm just hiding that all around the house in random places. You know what I mean? And uh, so it'd be 10 here, 20 there, 50 here. And... Uh, she could get that and like it was getting to the point where I, I told her what 25 was and uh stuck the back of the speaker off and got the money out of there and it wasn't a week and that money's gone and uh like that's we weren't spending that kind of money when I was home you spend it when no money's coming in and this is the way my mind works with numbers um so it's causing me a lot of stress. The money wasn't the point. It was that things were getting fucked up because that was our money. That's what everybody harped on because it's such large amounts. But they weren't large amounts to us. We were making it, and we made it together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, she comes down to the county. Last time I seen her when I was in jail. And she's got two of my chains on. Uh, big white gold chain with all these blue diamonds. And... The bracelet was nine bands, white gold with blue diamonds. And she had the gold ones on with my Rolex, both, all of them together. And she's got my child, and she says, if you don't tell me where some money's at, I'm going to go sell this stuff. So I just hung the phone up and walked out to visit, because I knew I mean, I was going to have them regardless. And uh, I refused her visits at that point and didn't call her anymore, because it, it's just me too, causing me too much pain. I didn't expect to get a year and a half. I thought I was going to get a year. So I was like, well, I've got six more months of this. And uh, then everything will be fine. But uh, she went nuts after that, too. Like, I refused her visit. Some other girl came up there. She's fighting a girl in the visit room. And in the streets, she just went nuts and calling here. And she's fucking my enemies. Um doing all these bad things just because I wasn't talking to her. She's trying to get my attention. And uh, I couldn't handle it. It wasn't like I talked to her, stopped talking to her maliciously. I just couldn't handle it. So I, I just fell back. I figured she'd come to her senses here in a month or two and things would be cool. She didn't, though. And, you know, harbor a lot of guilt feeling for as bad as she got because I quit talking to her. So I come home, and I, I, right before I come home, I'm in Youngstown, and I'm calling one of the homies, 
to him. He's like, bro, I don't want to tell you this, but someone was up. And he's like, uh, Gabby's tricking on Sullivan. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I get an argument with him. I think he's trying to like shit on me just because, you know, people want, there's a lot of envy and once you're down, people have the opportunity to feel like they're up. So, uh, I get an argument with him thinking he's trying to play me, but I come home, get my challenger out of storage. Second day I was home, I got my daughter at the hotel. I'm dedicated, I'm like, I'm going to be a dad. My child, my child's not going to live the same way I lived. So, uh, yeah, I'm saying things to myself in my prison cell, like, she ain't never going to have to put no good for money. Like, every girl I've ever met had to, where I come from, you know? Like, just... It's a disrespectful thing to say, but to, to most people, who may be a little sensitive, but uh, I'd say to Angie, you know, if the bitch ain't had to suck a dick to get through a day, then she's not somebody I can relate to. And so I would say that she's never, she's never going to have to suck a dick to get through a day and give her a good life. Got her at the hotel. I didn't even get laid for four days. And I'm, I'm like, I'm a boss, though. It sounds plain in the joint talking like that, but I'm certified at the time. Like, I'm, I'm the man. I'm fresh off the joint. I went and dug up $300,000 out of my backyard. My mom still had a bunch of money because I called her from the county. I was desperate. I kept having Madison dropped off at different places. Nobody wants to take care of her. So I drop her off and give him some bands. I had a lot of money, so I'm like, just take five over there, give them to her, maybe they'll keep her till they run out of money. They're keeping her four or five days and trying to get more money from me. So I'm having her, finally I sent her to my sister's house, and I could tell she was going to do it, but I could tell she didn't want to. She lives in Section 8, uh, the projects out west, and uh, so I'm like, call mom. I had talked to mom in 15 years. So she takes I had a conversation with her and it was kind of like a that deal you do this and everything will be forgiven it's kind of like an unspoken deal but she understood me and I understood her and I had a bunch of money dropped off to her and the jewelry I had left, uh, which, I mean, probably equal like 70, the value of the jewelry. Drop it off to her, my little sister ends up stealing the jewelry. She's all mouth and eye bitch. She's in prison right now, too. But, uh, she, she ends up stealing the jewelry, but I come home, I'm expecting no money to be there. And, uh, my mom's going 1500 <laughs> what the fuck, you know? Uh, so, anyway, single dad, I don't, I don't even get laid for four days. That's how dedicated I am, fresh out the joint. I'm not going to trap no more. I'm not going to do nothing. I ended up starting going to strip club, fucking with Mark, and my brother-in-law, and uh, spent up a bunch of money. And then... You have uh, one minute remaining. 
one of the houses I owned. My connect knocked on the door and got my phone number from the, from the renters and called me. And uh, I was right back into it. But I'm living in the suburbs out in Hilliard uh, and driving down to the neighborhood and serving and thinking that I could live this like double life where I could raise my daughter differently and still be down there and making money off these bad things. And I ended up getting life in prison for crime and, for crime I didn't commit because I tried to do both of those things instead of just... So how did that happen? How did you get life in prison for a crime you did not commit? How did you get life in prison for... using GTL. Can you hear me? Yep. So the question was, before we parted, was... How, how did you get life in prison for a crime you did not commit? Represented actual evidence and sentenced me to life, 25 to life. Um, but the, the details, if you want those, uh, I had a shop down in the neighborhood. Like I said, I was trying to quit selling drugs. It's a fantasy. Like it, it, it's not the way things work. But I thought I could like start a business. You know, the quintessential story that everybody in the joint tells. My story, yeah. Two times when I came home, she had no desire to see it. 
like I said, she gave her up to my mom. So, uh, she texts me and says that she's clean and she wants us to Madison. It's been nearly six months because the last time she seen Madison, uh, she had me follow home to try to This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So, uh, she, she visited Maddie. Maddie didn't know who she was. Like, she wouldn't let her hold her or none of that. And she's being all extra. Like, I'm your mom. And she's all high on Xanax. And Madison's kind of freaking out. She's like a type personality. And she's not comfortable. So, uh, we leave. And Gammy was acting strange and kept, like, trying to have me stay in the driveway for a very long time. And I'm like, what is he being weird for, though? And so I get in the car and back out. And uh, what she was keeping me there for was to make sure that the cars were ready. But I pull out and get on the freeway, and there's three cars following me. I know who the guy's words. Her boyfriend, his friend, and this... Uh, little snitch-ass dude from the neighborhood named Chris Pack and Coin Powders, a dude I grew up with. But, uh, he's a bum. He's jealous. He wanted to rob me because she's telling him about numbers and shit. So, uh, her boyfriend, is, he's in prison now for all these robberies and his co-defendant. Her boyfriend's name's, uh, James, uh, Forbes, James Forbes. They call him Devin. And then his co-defendant is Jeffrey Green. They're both rats. They told on each other when they caught the robbery case. But, uh, cases, Gabby would go fuck these dudes and set them up and they'd go and rob them in one way or another, break in their house or put a pistol on them. And, uh, that's what they tried to do to me. So I, I recognized the Camaro because that was, uh, was a little junk-ass six-cylinder Camaro. But uh, I recognized that it was powders because it's the little one. And uh, I ended up shaking them. But I texted her, like, bitch, are you serious? I got Madison in the car. Like, if you're, I mean, people set people up to get robbed when they're pissed. It's just like part of life where I'm from. But with the baby, you couldn't have, that's what I'm telling her. Like, you couldn't have did that when I was at the bar if you was going to do that. And uh, she's carrying on. Saying you got me fucked up and all this, but she didn't call me for like five months after that. So that let me know it was true because you're not about to just not contact someone. She knew she got busted, you know? And uh, so she, like I said, she takes me out the blue, wants to see Madison. So I'm suspicious of like what's going on. And she says that she's clean, she's doing good, and she did go to rehab for a short period. She got kicked out because she got a dirty. So, uh, I was, she's, so I was like, all right, Sunday, you can see her on Sunday. And she's cussing. He's like, I want to see her today. Bring her right now. And I was like, I can't. I'm working. I can't just stop. I told her. I started a business and trying to give her a good life. These are all text messages that were presented as evidence. And, uh, so I said, Sunday, I'll take a day off and you can meet with her. So I pick her up Sunday. Um, she visits with Maddie for a couple of hours. Maddie didn't know who she was again, but it wasn't as bad. Maddie was a little bit older, so it wasn't as awkward. Then I dropped Gabby off on the hilltop where she asked me to drop her off. Give her 80 bucks. She tried to get a bunch more money out of me. And uh, I'd give her 80 bucks. And I'm 
you know, I got some shit for giving her money, but I looked at that like she didn't have to work because she would have tricked that day if I didn't. I didn't want her to visit with her daughter and then immediately go trick on the block. So I'd give her the money, drop her off. And as I'm leaving, I send her some text messages. And because I knew she was going to a triumph right down the road. She had me drop her off there for a reason. But uh, I text her and I'm like, don't don't buy no dope with that money, Gabby. And cause she told me she was on Suboxone. I was like, you, Madison, I was like, Madison needs you. And honestly, I need you too. And... You say all the things that you say to somebody when they're when they're abusing drugs and you want them to get clean. So she reads those text messages. I see we got iPhones and I seen that she read it and didn't respond. So after like a half hour, I sent two long text messages with you know loving them. And after like a half hour, I was like whatever, dude. Ignore me, something like this bitch really just played me. You know what I mean? Talk to the kid, I give her, it's just 80 bucks, no big deal, but I break her off and then she goes to the spot and she's down with us. You know what I mean? This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. But she's reading those text messages. And uh, so I go back to my regular life. She's living her life, I go to mine. So. That night, uh, her cousin texted me, been like uh, 11 o'clock or something, and asked me uh, have I seen, or is Gabby still with me? And I was like, no, nah, I've been dropped off. And she asked me where, so I told her. And so I texted her and I said, hey, Kayla's trying to get a hold of you. And she read the text message. It popped up on my phone that she read it. I'm in Hilliard. And uh, from the phone records, she was out west on on uh, Paris Avenue, but I didn't know where she was at the time, and uh, so that was the end of it. Then the next day or two days later, uh, Kayla texted me, like, hey, I still haven't heard from Gabby. Um, do you know where she's at? I was like, well, I'll call out South and see if she's out there kicking it. And this was part of the evidence, too. Like six months before that, I get a text message early in the morning. Uh, that says Gabby's dead. This is six months prior to her actual death. Such a hell of a thing to wake up to. So I text back, they don't answer. I call, they don't answer. I'm like, motherfucker. So I get the calling around our house, just where she kicks it a lot. And uh, I'm asking her, but you seen Gabby? I just got a text and I take a snapshot and send it to specifically Sean and Red, who was the girl I sent it to, because I know she goes out there and buys dope off them. And uh, so she's calling around, and she's telling me, like, don't worry, it's probably okay. I'm trying to find her. So then she finds her and texts me. She's like, she's not dead. She's over again. Nope. And then Gabby calls me freaking out, cussing me, you're a fucking piece of shit. You told her, bitch, why would you text me and say that? She was trying to run some type of game on me, I guess. So when she's missing six months later, I don't think nothing of it. So I'm not about to go through this whole situation and have her yelling at me again because... You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, so I, I called out South, though. Anybody seen her? They said, no, I ain't seen her. So I don't think nothing of it. So Kay's like, what do I do? I was like, well, if you're worried. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I'll tell her, call the police. Report her missing if you're that worried. And she's like, well, they're going to want to talk to you. I was like, I don't care. Give my phone number. 
She knows I was hustling, so she didn't want to send the police at me. I was like, I don't care, give my number. So she reports missing, reports Gabby missing. They called me. I go meet with them. And they act like it was a horrible thing that I went and met with them. I was all the way out in Hilliard. They didn't want to drive to Hilliard. So they asked me if I could come into the police station. I was like, I don't want to go in there. I was like, I'll meet you right down the street at my lawyer's because it's... Don't nobody want to walk into a fucking police station, you know? And uh, they act like I was up to no good for that, you know, which was a violation of my rights. And it's pending case. There's case law that corresponds to it. all and everything. I meet with these people, talk to them. It's nothing. So... Some days later, um, some kayakers find uh, Gabby floating in a river. Um, it's Big Darby Creek or Little Darby Creek, but it's a river that people kayak through. And somebody put her inside of a trash can and threw her out there. Um, so they on Facebook everybody gets talking shit I didn't have a Facebook at the time because I was I was cheating on the girl I was with um so she made me get rid of my Facebook because I wasn't cheating on her no more and uh I did so Mark comes to me and that's the dude that I was telling you about and he's the co-owner of the shop I'm trying to get him to quit hustling too but he, he has no interest uh He's like, everybody's on Facebook running their mouth. So I'm reading that. I'm pissed. And I call my lawyer. I'm like, brother. You know, I'm like, what do I do? And I'm like, I should get on here and defend myself, right? He's like, absolutely not. It's a wrong thing to do. Don't add fuel to the fire. Blah, blah, blah. So I don't do that. Well, they said that was indicative of guilt, too, but I didn't defend myself. Um, you have one minute remaining. How I ended up getting charged. They go around, they're smacking all my customers' house, a couple of them, not all of them. And they're trying to get people to say whatever, because everyone's on Facebook saying it's me. Now Gabby's cousin, who was initially on my side and defended me, and who I told to call and report Gabby missing, is now saying that I'm involved somehow. So I knew that that was because the police went to her and said, hey, we think it's, we think it's him. So she switched on me. Whatever, I didn't do nothing. You'll find out in the long run. So, uh, they got on my case, and I'll start with the, I'll start with the camp house at the year first, when they got to focus on me. Thank you for using GTL. I'm here. I'm here. Like it's all, a lot of things happen at once, so it's hard to tell the story completely at once. So, like there's things going on simultaneously. So, um, Gamby's phone, they tracked her phone to find my iPhone. It was on the hilltop, um, in the general area that I dropped her off. I dropped her off at the end of the block. It was down in the middle of the block is where they located it, inside of the house. So... Kayla and Gabby's. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. He's like some 70 year old dude with one leg who was trying to play the hero in her life so that she could suck his dick, you know? Uh, it, it was just. It was a trip. So he's running around with Kayla. 
trying to say today. Um, they tracked the iPhone. His name's Paul something. He, he ended up getting a sex charge not too long after uh, Gabby passed away. But they go knock on the people's door. They called the phone. The guy answered. Told them, uh, fuck off. Was it, I guess it's exact words. That's in the transcripts. He said, fuck off. Um... They knock on the door, he tells them the same thing, cusses them out, slams the door in the face, I'm not giving you the phone. So, when, this was like two days before, Gabby passed away, or my body was found there, however you say it. Um, so, once that happens, homicide detectives get involved, they go to knock on the door. Who want the phone? They put in the paperwork that when they knocked on the door, that the girl, this girl named Nicole Brown, answered the door, handed them the phone. Nice, sweet thing. They said the person who originally wouldn't give them the phone was Nicole Brown, although the missing person's people had her recorded as a guy, white guy with a scraggly beard. Um, so on the stand during trial, all of it came out that this guy... There was never Nicole Brown. It's her house, and that's his sister, but she was never involved. The guy who had the phone and the guy who answered the door was a guy named Tyler Brown. For some reason, my transcripts have him recorded as Alex Rodriguez. His name was Tyler Brown. I remember him saying it. Um, but they have her, Nicole Brown, as the one in the phone, with, as the one with the phone. No issues. It's just that simple in my discovery packet. What happened, what came out on stand was he was lying. Nicole never had the phone. The phone was smashed. He tried to say that she smashed it. So they called her to the stand later on. The prosecutor called her. He had no clue that it even happened. The prosecutor and, and bust out the detective that he was lying. So long story short, when the cop came looking for the phone, this dude, Tyler, smashes the phone in the alley, dips out and hides it at his mom's house. We don't know where his mom's house is at, but it apparently was pretty close. Uh, stashes the phone there. Why he would smash her phone and hide it, I don't know. Why he wouldn't just give it back when somebody's saying, hey, that's a, the phone, they tracked it, it's ours. Why wouldn't he just hand it to him? Instead, he smashes it and goes and hides it. So the police show up, they're on the Cole Brown's ass. The Cole Brown calls him and says, hey, they don't care, they're not going to arrest you. Come give them the phone. They just want the phone. So I guess they get on the phone, talk to him. They didn't put none of this in the paperwork. They're like, yeah, just give us the phone, you're cool, bro. So, asking no questions, she said they interviewed him for a long time. The detective said they didn't ask him no questions. They just said, hey, give us the phone. He pulls up, hands him the smashed phone that he had hid, and they're like, sign or We recorded as him not being there and not existing. Something fishy, right? And that's, that's a felony that the cop committed. That's tampering with evidence, uh, falsification of a report, perjury under oath, and a few other things. Um... So, there's there's something in law called mens rea, which is motive. And when someone is intentionally high in something, fleeing is, mo it is indicative of guilt. Destroying evidence, evidence is indicative of guilt. It's enough to get an indictment, but they didn't even record it. So, anyways, they get the phone from him. They ask him where he got the phone, long story short. He points at the house across the alley, which is a drug house. Uh, supposedly, air, air quotes, he found it in the backyard. So, 
of the trap house, um, back from his house. The guy's name's Del Pine, which was Gabby's drug dealer. It's her baby's dad, a dude Eddie Hunter, that smoked. It's his uncle, which, remember me saying Tina Hunter, yeah. where she said all this bullshit to make it seem like I did something wrong. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Tina Hunter's maiden name is Tina Pine. Dale Pine's her brother. He's some, uh, he's, according to him, he's a self-proclaimed captain of the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, so he, uh, they smack his house. All the drugs that were in Gabby's system down to the strain of marijuana, which was THC Delta 9, was in his house. Um, the food's a creep. Like, there's a girl, there's, it's all in the evidence of the case. This girl came, called the police. He had her locked in the basement in a dog cage, uh, cut off all her hair, and ended up letting her go, but she said that she thought he was going to kill her. But creepy dudes like this. They smack his house. He says, I, I never even met this fucking punk. But they smack his house and he says, yeah, it breaks my connect. Last time I read up with him. He told me next time I see Gabby, I'm going to kill her. So that's what I said to him. I didn't even met this son of a bitch. So, and I don't still, I never sold fentanyl. I sold tar heroin. He was serving fentanyl. That's why I never met him. So, uh, um, so they're on my case after that. Then this, these two geeks in the county, they're, in, they're porters in the county jail. They pass out trace. They see Gabby's face on the nose. They tell the deputies, they come up with a plan together, you know what I mean, to get out of jail. They're in there for, like, drug paraphernalia or something. They say that we know who killed her. So they tell them that one of my customers, a dude named Scott White, has a picture of Gabby in that trash can in his phone that I supposedly sent to him. They hit his house. Find him with some dope. They got this dope case on him. They're like, tell us this and that, we'll let you go. He's like, I'm not talking to you. Three days later, his lawyer comes down, talks to him. He's like, let's I just want to look in your phone. I just want to see if this picture's there. That's all. That's it. They don't care about the drugs. So he unlocks his phone, shows it to him. They look at the picture. It's a meme that he sent me a couple days after I got out of prison, which is a girl standing over a recycling bin, and she's got, like, one foot in it. Like, it's a joke. And it says, um, I didn't like my girl, so I got a new one. Or something like It's a corny meme. And... Um, but by that point, there was already two different people saying that I did all these things. Well, three, actually, them two junkies in the county, and then, and then, uh, this drug dealer saying that I had all this intent. So, they're running around the neighborhood telling everybody all this off-the-wall wild stuff, spreading rumors to try to get things to come back. They're saying... Look, if people are posting on Facebook, they're saying that I cut Gabby's hands and feet off, that I stinged her, like filleted her, uh, that I cut her head off, that I pulled her teeth, saying all this crazy stuff. Um, it's the room that turned out through an investigation. I hired two different private investigation firms. The police were going to people's house, these two detectives, and telling them stuff like that. That way they would go spread rumors and then things would get back to them and they would know what was true. Like, I guess it was like a tactic. Um, but, I mean, it blasted me on Facebook that a, that a homicide detective is sitting in somebody's house saying that I cut my baby mom's head and hands and feet off and pulled her teeth with a pair of pliers. Like, 
and none of that happened to her. Like her body was pretty much intact. She had a weird bald spot on her head. Um, it's a strange thing, but that's they turned that into a bunch of other stuff. Um, so they I'm stressed. Like I'm, you, you see how I can get slightly emotional. So uh, I'm crying a lot. My daughter's never going to have her mom. And in the back of my head, like I was with someone else and I was living a different life, but in the back of my head, it was always Gabby's going to get clean. I'm going to be a family. Obviously, it wasn't going to happen now. So I'm in a bad place. I'm not doing well. So Sandy, this, this girl's with Sandy Joe, we had this big RV. She's like, let's just go to Buckeye Lake. It's a little campground in Ohio. Let's just go get away. Everything's going to be fine. It's a blowover, like the lawyer said. Let's just go spend some family time. So we did that, and then she's like, let's go to Disney World. Her family's in Florida. So we drove to Disney World, visit her family. When I'm down in Florida, I get indicted for murder. I drive up here and turn myself in. So I didn't have enough, and I figured we'd get it figured out. So uh, when we're down there, Mark comes down for Daytona Bike Week. He had a motorcycle. I ended up buying a motorcycle in Florida. Um, they tried to say I was on the run. I bought a motorcycle and registered it with the Florida BMV. Uh, was at Daytona driving it around. Like it's, we were using credit cards at RV parks. You gotta use your fingerprint scanner to get into Disney World, I'm sure. So, cause they won't let sex offenders in. I'm not on the run, we're just on vacation. And uh, so Mark has the dude who was one of our mechanics. He was a homeless man, but he was a hard worker. He's retarded, like a fully retarded person, but he knows how to work on cars to a certain extent. So I'm letting him stay at the shop. He keeps it safe. He takes care of the bulbs. And like I said, he's handy with cars. And the guy's a drug addict. So he sends this dude, James Bailey, to pick up. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. From his one of his count houses. I was front and marked out. Mark would give it to his worker. His worker would piece it out and collect the money. So he sends James over there to get it because he didn't want dude to spend the money. And I was like, well, James is just going to spend it. I was like, did you leave him some dope? He's like, no. That's a lot of money's gone. What are you thinking? You're going to put $2,200 in a dope sick dude's hands. And uh, it, Mark's just dumb. So, uh, that dude's freaking out. He spends that whole money, goes on a crack bench with this old lady named Debbie, who used to be our neighbor on Avondale. And I know that Debbie is one of the main reasons he did it. I haven't been able to contact her, um, but I know that she helped him come up with the story. I know that she has that information. They helped being smoked out on crack and paranoid. They came up with the story. James Bailey can't read or write. He's retarded. Everything that he said on Facebook was written on Facebook. He told them all the head cut-offs, hands cut-offs, teeth pulled, crazy stuff. He said that I said this stuff to him. Um, but, so I know that she read him that on Facebook and told him what to say. I just know it. Well, anyways, he's freaking out. I've, I've never shot nobody. I've never stabbed nobody. I've, I'm a fist fighter. 
and I've got kind of a reputation for that. It's not like I'm the best fist fighter. I've lost fights. I just, I'm willing to fight. And a lot of people aren't willing to fight, so they kind of fear that, and I'm a large dude. So I got that reputation. And he goes to a dude named Larry Stoneburner, who is a friend of mine. He's a drug dealer. And, uh, you have one minute remaining. What am I going to do? And Larry, Larry testified on my behalf. And uh, he said to James, he's like, I don't know, but he's going to kill you. But it wasn't a literal statement. He's saying he's going to beat your ass. It wasn't even my money, though. It was Mark's money. He just knew that Mark owed me that money. So this stupid fuck comes up with this story, calls the police, and tells them that I said that I killed Gabby. That he said that I told him she handed me custody papers. And I fucked up and killed her. That was his story. I never had custody of Gabby. Um, excuse me, of Madison. Gabby had full custody. I'm not on Madison's birth certificate. But she's not legally my child. So there's no possible way she could hand me custody papers. It's just people on Facebook were saying that it was a custody issue. They're saying that I did it because she tried to take custody of my daughter. The custody paper she posted on Facebook was for her other daughter. She filed for visitation, supervised visitation rights for her other daughter because Tina Hunter wouldn't let her see him. No, I don't know if you connected that just now. Tina Hunter, Del Pine, Tina Hunter's maiden name. Is... Thank you for using GTL. Okay. Can you hear me, Thomas? Yep. So in this in this last uh in this in this last connection, I just really want to cover the facts of uh, the evidence that was used against you and such. Okay. I got you. So, um. The phone, like I said, was found in at Del Pine's house by the dude Tyler Brown, who the police hid. They hid his identity. They hid the fact that he smashed the phone. And they hid everything that he said. Del Pine's house was hit by SWAT. All the drugs that were in Gabby's system were drug. Not, there wasn't an extra drug at his house. The drugs that was in her system matched exactly the drugs that was in his house. He blamed it. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I don't even know this guy. The state's motive was that I was in a custody battle, according to their witness. They had to go with that motive because that's what the witness said. The motive supposedly was that I was in a custody battle with Gabby for our child. Gabby had custody of her child. The battle that she was in was for visitation rights for her child that was in the possession of the hunters in the pines, which Delpine, Tina Hunter, brother and sister. They wouldn't let Gabby see her, pre her other daughter, Albriana, not me. She posted for visitation, supervised visitation rights, went down and filed downtown and posted, if you don't start letting me see her, I'm going to take custody back. Somehow that got blamed on me. Her body was threw into a river right directly behind a house that I was associated with, but that I hadn't lived at for nine months. I crashed out there for a few months. That's where Mark lived when I first got out of prison and I was partying, going to a strip club. We went out there hanging out with girls and shit. We were both single. When I got with this girl named Sandy Joe, we moved out to Hilliard and I settled down. Well, everyone thought that that was my house and I kept it that way because if they were going to kick a door in, they would kick that door in. Lo and behold, Gabby's body gets thrown 50 feet away from that house. And everyone says that I was fighting her for custody when in fact it was the other family who was fighting her for custody. And where was her phone found? in that other family's possession. So that's kind of funny that the state went with that story when it doesn't even fit me, it fits a whole other family. 
at trial, they deleted seven and a half hours worth of text data. So as I told you, I'm in Hilliard. I'm texting Gabby. Gabby's reading these texts. That's nine and a half miles. At one point, I was nine and a half miles away. At another point, I was 13 miles away. When I'm texting her, she's reading them. They deleted those because that proves that she was alive after I was not with her. Their, their story was that she never left when I when she came for visitation with Madison that I killed her. The evidence says that she wasn't murdered at all. She doesn't have norfentanyl in her system, which is the metabolite of fentanyl. She has fentanyl. So it takes you 120 seconds to produce norfentanyl after you ingest fentanyl. She died before having enough time to produce the metabolite. So she lived less than 120 seconds after she after the drugs were in her system. But they're saying that I strangled her, not by cutting off her hair flow, by cutting off her blood flow, which would take even longer. She was still breathing, supposedly, but the blood on both sides of her neck, the, the, the carotid and the jugular, were cut off, which caused a brain injury, caused her brain to swell. And ended our life, which would take an extended period of time, a lot longer than 120 seconds. Um, well, there's no brain injury, though. There's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with her brain. It's perfectly intact. Um, like, it's healthy. There's nothing wrong with her, period, internally. Um, just the toxicology shows that she died from an overdose. Well, they hurried up and charged me with murder based off a witness's statement and what they believed. When the medical forensics came back, it didn't say murder. So they put acute fentanyl intoxication slash undetermined homicidal violence. How you can't determine homicidal violence when your only job as a scientist is to dissect somebody's body and see what organ failed to cause death. There was nothing wrong. So there was no organ failure to cause death. She OD'd. And uh, so they re they removed that. It's Detective Brian Meister and Detective William Duffer of the Franklin County Sheriff's Department. They altered the evidence to make it look like I never left and I was still with her. Two people testified on my behalf that they were with her days later, two days later, that they were with her on the south side of Columbus. Cell phone evidence supports that. Um, and witness testimony. This one guy who told this story, he, he, here's, a, here's a major thing. I'm running out of time and there's so much stuff left. Maybe later, if you don't mind, I can get one call on just evidence because there's more stuff. But anyway, um, the, um, he said that he never seen Gammy with me the entire time. He testified under oath for posterity's sake that he never seen me with Gammy. Then the day of trial, he tells the jury that he seen me with Gammy. And my lawyer confronted me about it. Hold on, you said before that you didn't. He says, no, I didn't. I said the whole time that I seen them together. I seen her face. He was with her at the shop. That's 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 perjury under oath. He changed his story the day of trial. There's a legal thing called false anambe, false anambus, which is false in one thing, false in everything. If you catch him lying, he's a liar. The story can't be true, and that's a huge aspect. Video evidence proves his story wrong. Cell phone evidence proves his story wrong. It's just not true. What he said was because he was scared that he was going to get punched in the face for stealing money. And they took my entire life behind it. They have a mountain of evidence that shows I'm innocent. In February, there was unknown DNA at the crime scene. It was there was semen in her panties. Um, unknown Hispanic male. They had it in the paperwork as unknown.
This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Her body was covered in bleach, specifically her vagina. Her pants were faded right there. Her underwear were faded right there. In spite of this dousing in bleach completely, so semen made it through a dousing in bleach and lived. That's the amount of semen that was in that area. Some of it lived. It was unknown at trial. A guy got arrested in February and deported to Mexico. When he got in the county, they took his DNA. It came back and CODIS, yeah, his cum was on her. And uh, so when they go and detecting, Detective Brian, they go and interviewing, Detective Brian Meister goes in there and says, hey, do you know this girl? And shows him the picture. The guy says, no, I never met her before. He had sex with her. They're like, hold on, you Siemens on her dead body. Why, uh, you have to know her. And he's like, no, no, not me. I don't know her. He's got a translator. And uh, so... You can read it through the paperwork. So basically, the detective tells him, you're not in trouble. Say this and you get to go home. Like literally said just that to him. We already have our guy. You don't, we know, but the guy's in there lying, saying he doesn't know her. And his semen was at the crime scene. I was, nothing connects me to the crime scene, and cell phone evidence proves that I was 13 miles away. But this guy's directly DNA tied to the crime scene, and they're telling him, say this and you get to go home. So he says, yeah, I met her. I met her on Facebook. We had sex after saying he never met, never seen her before. We had sex. I didn't pay her. We were friends. We hooked up because she liked me. Uh, don't tell my wife, though. They deport this guy back to Mexico and then send me the paperwork so we can't send an investigator to talk to him about why he was lying and saying he didn't know her and why his DNA. DNA doesn't last long underwater. She was underwater and she was covered in bleach, but there was enough cum to be detected. And that's saying something. And they tried to say she was underwater for five days, but there was nothing wrong with her body, and the semen survived. The, our expert said she was under underwater for an hour tops. Um, so, long story short, there's this ton of evidence that shows I didn't do anything. They misrepresented a bunch of it to try to say that I did, deleted evidence to make it look like I was still around, when she's reading her text messages, she had to unlock her phone to get into it. So let me uh, ask you. I've been reading them. She was just ignoring me. Let me ask you quickly. How do you know that they deleted those texts? What factual evidence is there to, to prove that they deleted texts? I paid three thousand dollars. I paid. I gave my phone to my lawyer and gave him three thousand dollars to download. The they didn't tell the detectives that they downloaded it. They kept that a secret. They never told, they never gave them the cell phone. So the, the cell phone evidence that the detectives used, the, 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 the expert got on the stand and said that the last phone communication was at 4.23 p.m. on February 19th, 2017. Well, we have the phone records and the last phone communication was at 11 something, I think 11.47 on February 19th, 2017. They deleted seven hours of it. We have the evidence. And you still have I this evidence. Her. And you I still have this evidence now. She read that text message. You still have that evidence now? You still have that evidence now? You still have that evidence now? Yeah. Yeah. I got to sit in my cell. The Ohio Innocence Project has it. That's why they're, that's why they're 
they're investigating my case to take it right now. I've presented the evidence to the court that the that, the, that Brian Meister altered this evidence to make me look guilty. Okay, so they quickly. They changed the date on a motion. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So where do you stand at right now? I'm afraid I'm going to die in here. But where's your case at? What's 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 the procedure? Um, um, I've got uh, the Ohio Innocence Project working on it. Um, I need to file a habeas uh, because I'm an unpopular defendant. The, the county keeps saying we don't care, basically. We don't care that there's evidence to the contrary. We're protecting these cops. We don't care that they, they changed the date on a motion. They backdated it. And I got the proof that they backdated it to dismiss the case so that they didn't have to hear the facts that, so that they could say that they never looked at it. They couldn't look at it because they lacked jurisdiction. They changed the date on a motion. I have it at the proof in order to dismiss it. They want me to stay in here. So my only hope is that the federal courts will take a look at it and free me or that the public will realize that this cop is a crook that the, the, because the, the forensic pathologist had dementia. He got fired for having dementia. He's the one who put on there that it's acute fentanyl intoxication slash undetermined homicidal violence. He got on the stand and committed a bunch of perjury. It wasn't on purpose, though. The guy just can't remember because he's losing his mind. He got fired for it. But this is really an overdose case. She had an accidental overdose that a drug dealer dumped the body to avoid being charged for selling drugs to somebody who died. That's an involuntary manslaughter charge. Some person lied because they were in hot water, they thought. Blamed it on, they took my whole fucking life. And the reason it's okay is because I was in the streets and I was doing drugs. And I know that was wrong. But yeah. I didn't kill Gabby. Right. They took my children. I lost my fiance. I lost my entire life. And everyone thinks and I, I'm innocent. I, I didn't do it. Yeah. And there's evidence. There's no evidence that says I did it. And there's a bunch of evidence that says I didn't. And people are overdosing on fentanyl every day. You have one minute remaining. Oh, nonstop. There's a whole task force in Columbus that goes after drug dealer, the overdoses that charge drug dealers with involuntary manslaughter, and they get like 10 years. Well, let me ask you this here real quick. Do you, do, you, do you have more evidence that you want to talk about, or do you think we've covered enough? Yes. I need one more... I need one more phone call with you. I can't have it right now. What time? Later today, please. What time? One more. Uh, she gets off work at four. She gets off work at four. Okay. So five o'clock. I'll wait on you. Uh, thank you, Thomas. No, thank you for sharing your story, man. Yeah, you're, I'm, I'm, my hope is that you're going to save my life. I want justice. I want my daughter to have justice. I want Gabby to have justice. Like, I want the truth to be out there. I don't care who is in trouble. I don't care about none of that. I just want everyone to know that this, and I don't want my daughter growing up believing this is what I am. Because Thank you for using GTL. Hello? Hello. Can you hear me, Thomas? I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, sir. Um, but you wanted to finish up on the 
uh, points of innocence, right? Yes. Whatever, whatever facts that you have, any anything that you that you want want the people to hear, let it go. Okay. Um, the med- this call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. I spoke briefly earlier about the medical friend. You have uh, one minute remaining. Okay, partner, everything's all right, man. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right, man. Everything's, um, everything's uh, all right. Go ahead. All right. Uh, earlier, I spoke about the uh, medical forensics and the backstory about that. It's a doctor, Kenneth Gersten. Um, he was just over 70 years old. Um the reason he's no longer employed as a doctor, um, his license expired, but he retired because he was forced into retirement by Anaya Ortiz, the head coroner in Columbus, Ohio, for um, refusing to undergo neurological testing. So long story short, four other employees of the Franklin County. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Uh, can put in informal complaints that he was having memory memory related work performance issues. Um, so during that time is when he performed Gabby's autopsy. Well, he gave a preliminary ruling of homicide based off the manner that her body was found. Um, and that got the detectives to work. That's when they started chasing people down and doing the things that they did. Well, when he um, performed the autopsy and all of her organs were healthy, he should have immediately notified them, but I'm assuming due to the memory loss, he didn't. So I get charged with murder. I'm sitting in the county county jail waiting on an indictment. The last day that the indictment is due, uh, my lawyers are coming down, freaking out, talking about how, how unorthodox this is for me to be sitting in the county without an indictment. The last day, they finally put a close of death, the grand jury, I'm assuming from what I was told, they call over to get calls of death from the coroner's office. He looks at it, sees that I've been charged for its acute fentanyl intoxication slash undetermined homicidal violence. On the stand, he said that the reason for the undetermined homicidal violence was because blood flow, uh, pressure on her neck occluded blood flow to the brain, which caused brain anoxia, and which is total loss of oxygen, and she died by a brain injury. Um, that was uh, the norfentanil, the, which is, or the lack of norfentanil, and the high amount of fentanyl was a contributing factor, which none of that makes sense in practice. Um, and he, he went back on that. He committed perjury multiple times. And that's the, that's the biggest point because the story was that I committed some malicious murder out of hate, and there's not a murder at all. So it all, it all falls apart there. Then... The, the felonies that were committed by Detective Brian Meister to try to make the story fit and by his main witness uh, and the prosecutor egged the main witness on to commit perjury the times that he did to become an eyewitness the day of trial for when for 15 months prior to that 
he said directly and once under oath that he wasn't an eyewitness. He never saw Gabby and me together that day. He changed the story from the 19th to the 20th once phone records came back that disproved his story on the 19th where we were able to retrieve video evidence and eyewitness testimony which disproved his story on the 20th also. They still went with it. And the jury found me guilty due to the high level of misconduct. Who are you going to believe? A detective and an expert and a, and a coroner or a defense attorney and some guy sitting over here in a suit. So the deck's stacked against you in that manner. And uh, But other than, other than uh, the cell phone records being altered, the reports being falsified by the detectives. They had a BCI scientist, Devante Herdman, get on the stand and claim that there was no DNA. Well, there was DNA that didn't match mine. That was a complete set. That was unknown. That person was found in February of 2020. And then there was another, um, it was missing one chromosome, so almost complete, that I was ex excluded from. And that that points towards someone else. He got up there and said there was no DNA whatsoever. And the prosecutor led him into that questioning. They elicited it from him and they stood with it. A huge violation. My lawyer gets up there and corrects it, but the damage is already done. Um, it's been said in the, by Justice Blackburn, you can't unring the bell once the jury hears what they hear, regardless of instructions to forget it. And then there was a piece of plastic. This is what I didn't highlight earlier. There was a piece of automotive plastic in my shop. There was 43 cars at my shop. Well, Chevy's GMs from the 90s used blue polyethylene plastic. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. And they simply spray paint the color of the interior over the plastics, but underneath it's blue polyethylene. There was a small piece of blue polyethylene in the back of a white Chevy van, 1998, which had blue polyethylene trim. It had been worked on. Some of the trim had been altered. They said that that piece of plastic came from the trash can that contained Gabby's body that was miles away. There was also a piece of blue polyethylene plastic on the floor that was beside a recycling bin at the shop. The recycling bin at the shop had the top cut out of it for easy disposal of trash. The top was cut out by James Bailey, the witness against me. He's the one who said it. Well, there's a piece of plastic on the ground beside it. They said that this piece of plastic links me to the trash can that Gabby was found in, and it's just it's garbage. That's it's compared to if there's a coke can at your house, and they find a coke can at the scene, and they say, well, there's coke in your fridge, and there's coke there, so you're guilty of murder. That connection. They get the expert on the stand, and they they ask scientifically does that piece of plastic match this piece of plastic and she said no after two hours of them making it sound the prosecutor making it sound like it did through a series of questions my lawyer says directly does that match she says no so did that piece of plastic sitting right there that you tested come from a trash can at all and she said no so that was their forensics along that that helped this terrible story that the witness had this was their saving grace was there was a piece of plastic at my shop that matched the trash can and the expert said not only did it not match the plastic, it didn't come from a trash can at all. It's just standard blue polyethylene plastic, which is the most common, cheap, most durable plastic in the world. Um, uh, there was
misconduct by the judge. She met with the uh, juror off record. They were on record, and then she went off record, and they made a deal about a pending case that a juror had. Regardless if they said, hey, I'll make this deal for you if you do the things for me, that's still putting pressure. And there's a lot of case law about how a single juror can act as a conduit for the rest of the jury. And judge then there's my transcripts are altered people's names are changed so that we couldn't find them things that came out at trial um there's a whole set of phone records that's sealed in the uh, evidence envelope that they tried to present at trial that we would never seen before the judge ordered it to be excluded and sealed in that uh, evidence envelope i haven't gotten it i've never had access to it i've requested it um let me ask crime stopper phone calls where well, I wanted to ask you, was that tarp, was that piece of plastic, was that, was that the only evidence that they had to tie you to that scene? Yeah, they, but they, yeah, and the, the legal standard was it didn't even tie me to a murder, it tied me to a body disposal. And they asked the jury to make an inference from an inference, which is a violation of your constitutional rights. That if I was tied to a body dump, then I would therefore be tied to a murder. A jury can't make an inference from an inference, but it's not a murder at all. It's an, it's an overdose case. So it fails around the board. No matter what test you put it to, it fails. And how they accomplished this and took my life was through misconduct. Um, some of the misconduct, multiple points of the misconduct, rose to the level of felonies. That's how dedicated they were to this. And then, like I said, the, the, I think the biggest part of it is these people were heroes, and really they're crooks. So if if they end up having to let me out of here one day, well, everyone knows that they're crooks and not heroes. They lose all that credit, and then the state has to compensate me because it's a that's a it's misconduct by the coroners. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. The coroner's office, the judge, the prosecutor, and the sheriff's department, unilateral misconduct, which cumulatively got them a murder conviction that's, that was unlawful and not true. So, that's pretty much it. So, so to sum up everything, the the only evidence that they had really to tie you to Gabby's body was this this piece of plastic. There was no DNA evidence on her tying you at all, but they did find DNA evidence, which was sperm that was a Mexican that they had in their custody, and let them let him go because they were keenly focused on they were solely focused on you. who smashed the phone and hit it. They didn't want they didn't want him to come to light. They didn't want the guy whose DNA was there to come to light. And these are the things that we found out about. So imagine if there's this many things that we're just stumbling across Do you think you know more viable suspects and Do you think do you think the family that Gabby had the other child with, do you think that they um they overdosed her on purpose? Because it was in the therapeutic level. Uh, I had to 
a doctor who performed 13,500 autopsies in his career. Now he's a teacher. His name is William Cox. He, uh, he was on the stand yelling, literally raising his voice yelling at the prosecutor because the prosecutor was trying to take it out of context. And he's, he's saying there's no way on God's green earth that this is anything but an accidental overdose. It's an autonomic conflict, which is your heart and your brain have a conflict, and that causes your heart to stop and you die in. Um, it comes through a specific combination of drugs. There's multiple specific combinations. But I don't think that it was purposeful, no. I think that it was just happenstance, and wherever it was, whether it was there or whether it was at the Spanish guy's house, Somebody simply freaked out, and the easiest way to do it, well, if, to not get the police to look at me, I would therefore get them to look at somebody else. So whether or not they thought I would, in the end, get convicted, they're not going to stand forward and be like, hey, never mind, it was me, I'll go do 10 years. No one's going to do that. Um, but whoever whoever did it, they put, they put her at the Trapper John's Creek for a reason, because they thought I lived out there. That to me, you know, to, to everyone else, that might not be demonstrative of the malice, but I know it is because I know these people and I know. But she wasn't a custody battle for them, so I think it worked out to their convenience whether or not they participated or did it on purpose or did it at all. Um, it worked out in their favor. So Gabby just, Gabby just overdosed. Nobody killed Gabby. Nobody murdered Gabby. Yeah. She just she just overdosed. Scientifically. Yeah, scientifically. Like uh, for we, I was in the county for a year before we we got the overdose evidence back. And uh, the reason we did is because Dr. Kenneth Gersten, they a private investigator, set through another trial. Her name's uh, Sarah Gregg, and she set through another trial. Jessica Gregg, I'm sorry. And you have one minute remaining. She heard that Kenneth Gersten had been fired for a neurological issue, and then he messed up all these autopsies. I felt something was wrong with the cause of death, and so did lawyers. So we hired this expert for six grand, and uh, he looked at it. He called him immediately, and this is what my lawyer said. As soon as he got, he picked up the phone and called him and said, "Hey, something's wrong here. Because of the norfentanil, because there's no brain injury, it's impossible for it to be a murder. It's just scientifically impossible." And that that gave me some level of comfort. Are we done? Or... Do you need more? No, I mean. It's up to you, buddy. I just wanted to get the, I wanted to get the misconduct. I think, I, I think, more questions. I think we got enough. We took Angie through enough. She's been great, man. And um, and just stay, stay, stay your best self, man. Stay out of your emotions, and just let everybody know. Free me podcast, Nab Radio, N A A B, Radio dot com, Nab Radio dot com. Thank you for using GTL.